It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. The process of reinventing oneself seems to be ever-present right now, not just in a cultural sense or people writing articles and blog posts and what to do with their lives, certainly in the aftermath of COVID and the shelter at home and all the things that we've collectively experienced the past few months in human society. Beyond all that, and including all that, I feel like for the three of us on this podcast episode, it just feels like there's an interesting confluence of this idea of expansion and reimagining oneself and reinvention. And I just felt really compelled to start on that subject because first of all, super excited to have you, Ruby, here on the podcast. And Whitney and myself, we seem to be kind of in a very similar place in terms of our life path where we've been doing this thing for so long of being, I guess, leaders, if you will, or way showers in the the vegan plant-based movement, the eco movement. And it feels like right now, interestingly enough, all three of us seem to be at this massive reimagining expansion and reinvention point. And I just want to dig right in, like no floof, no light stuff. Like let's just jump into reinvention and recreating oneself. And and I guess for both of you, Ruby, we'll start, you know, and, and Whitney, where where are we all at with that? Because it feels like we're at the same point, very similar points at least. Hi, friends. Yeah, I think we all got caught in this problem specific to the digital age which is, you know, we were leaders and leading the way in the vegan space just as social media started. I mean, when I started my Facebook page, I talked to my publisher. I was like, what is a page? Do I start a page? And they're like, we don't know. And I think we got caught in what happened is we became brands. And it's a problem specific to the age that we live in, where the more you do the same thing over and over and over again, because it takes multiple times for people to even absorb what you're showing them, um, that you essentially become a brand without meaning to. And all of us were always more than the vegan branch of the work that we do. Um, But I certainly can say for myself, I got pigeonholed into children's vegan space and demographic um, like you got typecast. <laughs> yeah, or or that I was seen kind of as an activist and not as an artist. And people forgot that, you know, I do f- women's figurative art. And that didn't really fit into the Instagram grid, you know, when, when all the other stuff is baby chickens and tomatoes. And, you know, it, it, it's uh, like you feel pressure to be one thing. So in a way, Ruby, we hear about this a lot, right? That people become known or successful in a particular genre or art form or business sense, whatever it is. And we hear about people being, quote, you know, victims of their own success, which is, we could unpack that maybe, that's kind of a loaded statement. But when I hear you talk about this and, and becoming a brand, so to speak, whereas people just know you for one thing and therefore expect you to keep hitting that one note over and over again, it reminds me of a lot of friends and, and heroes and colleagues where they'll have a taste of success in a particular field, again, or genre or product. And then 
you know, their publisher or their record label or their managers or their agents or whomever is in their particular universe, you know, encouraging them to do their work is like, yeah, okay, so we had success. So uh, do that exact same thing again, because we made so much money and we had so much success the first time. And inevitably, you hear about the aftermath of these artists or these personalities, these human beings becoming increasingly frustrated because the universe around them becomes so enraptured in that one thing that that's what everyone wants them to do because people want to be around success and fame and money. And what's that level of like frustration? I mean, how have you dealt with that, again, in this continuing evolution of yourself as an artist and a human to say like, okay, everyone wants me to keep doing the same damn thing, but I don't want to do that? Yeah, it's totally unnatural for me as an artist to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Even you know, even the marketing advice, like, okay, use the same, use a cohesive color palette on your Instagram feed is like, I'm using my whole palette and I don't, I don't produce work like that. So yes, the pressure is there and it's definitely a, a part of the age we live in because look at Shel Silverstein who wrote Where the Sidewalk Ends. We all know that book. We all love that book from childhood. He was an illustrator for Playboy and he was a playwright and he wrote award-winning songs that we've all heard for other singers that were on, you know, pop chart lists. Uh, he didn't have to maintain a website and a cohesive brand that he presented to the public. So he, he was also Jason's dad, apparently, inside Joe. <laughs> really? Do you know the story? <laughs> no. Oh, God. Yeah. Ruby, do you know that my dad, uh, Andres, he, he was a doppelganger for Shel Silverstein? Really? And he, yeah. In the 70s, he was here in LA doing acting. And he would go around to restaurants and clubs and things like that in LA as if he was Shel Silverstein, like saying, I'm Shel Silverstein. And he looked so much like him that he did this for a good probably seven, eight years, getting free meals, getting inside clubs, <laughs> maybe even getting into the Playboy Mansion. There's some interesting stories, but eventually someone caught him and then the jig was up. Well, I and love that just an artist of that level you know, was treated like royalty. <laughs> I mean, that was someone that you could pass for and like get extra royal treatment. And it goes to show that even before online celebrity, that people were copying each other and, and getting things out of it. I mean, it's, a, it's actually interesting because that happens too, is not only people do people want you to fit in some sort of a box, but they also think that they can copy you because if you're successful, then they're thinking like, I'll just follow this formula. We talked about this in another episode that we did about how we're encouraged to be different, but we're also encouraged to be the same. Yeah. Well, going back to your question, Jason, about the frustration, it's like, I've kind of accepted that there's, and this is a theme in a lot of my work, whether it's children's or my adult figurative stuff, that we go through constant life and death cycles. And so that happens in our relationship. Sometimes a part of the relationship, you know, is, is dying off or, or that goes on in our families or in our work cycles or in our creativity or our moods. And I've just kind of accepted that that's going to be part of my whole life cycle of work for my entire life is there's going to be times of reinvention. There's going to be times of quiet, which I think we're really hard on ourselves when we're not producing. But we can look at, you know, even musical artists that we love who disappear for a while and they're not putting out stuff. And then they come back with an album. and Or completely change. Yeah, or completely I, uh, change. The other day, I 
I actually didn't know this story. I bet you Jason could talk about this. I didn't know who Darius Rucker was. And then I realized he was the lead singer for Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh And he switched from being an American rock band to a country singer. Yeah. Do you know much about that story? I do. (laughs) Didn't people get really upset about that, Jason? Did You probably know about this too, I imagine. Oh, yeah, very much so. And funny enough, to get past the initial what the fuck moment of like, First of all, you know, you call him Hootie, he's in, and he cleared this up in the 90s. He's like, I'm not Hootie. It's just the name of the band. But <laughs> but nonetheless, I remember my first initial reaction was like, Hootie's a country singer? And then I actually gave his music a listen, and I thought, he's actually really good. There's an interesting, I don't know, authenticity and soulfulness and certain way for his voice to match that genre of music that after I got my, again, past my initial judgment and well, fucking Hootie's doing country, I was like, oh shit, he's good. But I I think it brings up, you know, for both of you and and Wit, you know, I want to chime in, hear you chime in too, because you're in this process of, of, you know, kind of rebranding and reinventing yourself too, is this, again, this pressure of, oh, people expect me to do X because I've sold, especially with success, right? Because if you fly under the radar, I feel like there's not as much pressure because your identity, your perception of who you are isn't as entrenched. But someone like, you know, Darius Rucker, who, good God, they sold tens of millions of records in the 90s. I mean, getting like a diamond record, like that shit doesn't even happen anymore, FYI, in the record business. Like nobody does diamond records anymore. But a diamond record, which is 10 million albums or more, they were cranking out I mean, it was ridiculous, right? So you think about that, you're like, okay, well, I'm making millions of dollars. We're selling tens of millions of records, sold out tours. I'm going to flip genres completely. Like the, That also reminds me it's of- crazy. Um, you love Jim Carrey so much, Jason. Remember like when he switched from doing Ace Ventura to like suddenly he's doing all these dramatic roles and people are like, hey, you're supposed to be the funny actor. You're not allowed to be like a dramatic actor. Yeah. Well, I think the key word is authenticity and this very strange thing we find ourselves doing these days of, it's almost like codependent, like, oh, I need you to be one thing for me to be okay. <laughs> I don't, I don't like that you're changing. Right. It's like people absurd. are, well, I think it just shows how so many people are afraid of change and there's a resistance to evolution and adapting. I mean, we're experiencing this so much during quarantine as the time that we're recording this. We're kind of what feels like might be the tail end in early May 2020, but we have no idea if the world will ever go back to what we thought it was. And it seems like so many people are struggling with with that, the uncertainty, the fear, the unknown, the, oh my gosh, things are changing. I don't want them to change. And there's like, it feels to me this energy of people trying to cling to what was and wanting it to go back so badly. But is would it even benefit us to go back? Maybe it's actually good for us. No, and I, know? I think that fear of change is really, you know, it's fear of loss. And, yep. and for me, transitioning from children's books, which was my main focus for 10 years, and I was in a family married and raising you know, his child and they were part of my marketing story and inspiration, you know, and all my social media and newsletter was around that. And then I had to switch because I'm not in that relationship anymore. And so I, I can tell you for the last few years, my work, you know, since I got out of that relationship, my work has been about kind of apocalypse and loss. 
and facing it and sitting with myself in the dark and figuring out, wait a minute, who am I without my job, without my husband, without a daughter, without being in a family unit and facing that fear of change. So I think my tolerance level has gone so high up that I've actually been, I can see my mental health is pretty good during during this lockdown um, because I've been readying myself and facing loss and facing death cycles, you know, facing, okay, there's death in the house of love. What, when I take everything, all the distractions away from my outside identity, what is the crystalline form inside of myself that's left? And I found a lot of love and a lot of fear, you know, not anger and not jealousy and, you know, not some of these other things that other people might find, agitation. But I found that for better or worse, I tolerate a lot. And that's who I am at my core. And so I think Amazing. that ties into everything. Um, I, I also had, you know, to face fear of loss of this thing that I built and say, okay, I'm not going to call it We Don't Need Animals anymore, my social handles. I'm going to change it to my name and I'm, I'm going to put out my personal artwork, which is feminine and figurative and kind of edgy and kind of erotic and a little darker and there's skulls and kind of heavy metal vibe. And if I lose some of the people, then so be it. And what's going to happen? Like, I'll still go on to live. Um, mm -hmm. And so that I think that's a, a time that we're in on a massive scale is facing loss. And who are we without our jobs and without people around us? Absolutely. And your story is such an incredible example of that. And I think a lot of people go through their lives clinging to stability. You know, it's like, I don't want things to change. I'm too afraid of them changing. And so it's just like this tension. You know, one of my friends right now is in a position where she might be evicted from her home due to some kind of crazy circumstance. And she's so afraid to lose her home. And I really wanted to speak with her about how maybe it will be a better thing. Maybe she'll find a better place. You know, what? it's a great opportunity to release attachment. But it's, it's challenging to talk to people about that when they're going through it. You know, it's like, it's so tough sometimes when you're in the middle of the storm to see out of it. And I think that's, that's uh, really tough. So for anyone listening who's not experiencing that right now, it's a great opportunity to reflect on what would you do and what will you do or what are you doing during those tough times of change where you don't have control. You know, and it's also a great example, too, of how we often think we have a lot more control over our lives than we actually do. And things can just change on a dime, right? I mean, it felt like the blank was lifted out from underneath us. The floor fell. The rug. Yeah, the, rug. the rug, thank you. <laughs> the rug was pulled. I knew it was some sort of claw. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it felt like it happened. There was such a drastic shift when COVID-19 happened, even though I had seen it you know, showing up in the news, what was going on in China. But I feel like in the US where the three of us live, it was like, oh, that's that's happening to somebody else. That's not happening to us. That's not going to happen to us. We're safe here. And even our president was saying that we were safe. And, you know, and then all of a sudden it was like seemingly overnight, suddenly the whole world changed and we were in it too. And it's a shock, especially if you're not mentally prepared. So I think Ruby, it's such a great example of, of where you're at right now. And what we aim with this podcast is 
to do our best to help prepare people mentally and emotionally or, or help them learn from their challenges and their struggles. And, and that's actually a theme of your book, Bad Day, which really inspired me to have you on the podcast, Ruby, because I, I love the message, not to spoil it, but it is a kid's book, so you can read it pretty fast. I and say it's for ages zero to 101. So it's, so tr- it's true. Yeah, sorry. I, I don't mean to uh, put it in the box as a kid's book because I, I do believe it's so much more than that. But meaning it's a very quick read and illustrated. And, you know, the message of it in the end is working through tough emotions and challenges and struggles and recognizing that that can actually make you stronger, right? I mean, I think that's actually one of the lines in your book, isn't it? Like, this is what made me strong. Yeah. This little boy, you catch him in the middle of complete overwhelm and meltdown, and he learns to take a pause, which happens happens to happen inside of a brown paper bag. That's his safe space. And you go in there in the dark with him, just like I sat in the dark, you know, after my split. And um, he learns how to pause and re-regulate when he feels dysregulated, which we all feel right now. Our whole system, all our life systems in America are are dysregulated. Uh, So this little boy learns to pause and reflect and find the power of turning inward. Yes. And I think you said in one of your descriptions of it that it's it's about that self-empowerment and resilience and understanding your feelings, even if you don't feel like you can explain them and, and not feeling your place in the world or understood in the world. I love all those messages. In fact, your book almost feels like a poem in a way. You know, It's like this beautiful story and, and it's very short, but you can learn so much from it. And, and also, I think it's what's neat about your book is as an adult, you're kind of like tapping into your inner child. And remembering how hard it was as a kid when you really didn't feel like you understood yourself. But truth be told, I think a lot of us haven't necessarily changed that much since we were as kids. And some people may go a a huge part, if not all of their lives, without really feeling empowered or resilient or maybe just completely insecure with their feelings and not knowing what to do about it. So I think it's it's a great opportunity for us to look back on like, you know, what were we like as kids? What were we struggling with? And are we still facing that stuff today? Or how did the impact of our childhood have on our adulthood? Yeah. What can we learn from that? You know, and I've been listening I love that. to um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who I think is one of the leading people on trauma and, and just learning yes. about the definitions of trauma. And and one of the things he said it's is that trauma is very related to the story untold or being having ourselves unseen or unheard. And I think part of, you know, when I say go inward and find out who you are, that's very abstract. But what it really means is like reflecting on your own story and acknowledging, you know, what you had to do to survive or get through obstacles and who that makes you. And, and that is relevant to what we're all going through now. I think my training in that started as a child. I wore a back brace starting at age six um, for scoliosis. I wore it 20 plus hours a day for 13 years. So most of my childhood, I lived in it. And that, you know, without anybody teaching me, that gave me the discipline to go inward, you know, when I was feeling pain on the outside of my body and say, how am I going to dissipate this discomfort as a little kid? And I remember thinking, 
really young having the thought, I am not my body. So this thing is happening to me, but I'm inside of this vessel. And that's still a theme that you can see in my adult work and, and how the children's work is related to the adult work. I've got, you know, posters about, you know, a woman in a garden and she's wearing a gas mask and she's standing in, in all of a field of blue hyssop and fungi and hydrangea and all of these natural resources that suck toxicity out of the ground, bioremediate toxicity. And I see ourselves, humans, with our, you know, quote unquote, higher intelligence, that's supposed to give us an ability to be vessels to transform toxicity into life force energy. We're supposed to have that. And it doesn't, you know, just happen when you're in yoga class and you feel calm, you know, for that 55 minutes. It's like you have to do that right now when we're having a pandemic. This is it. This is your chance to exercise those muscles. It reminds me, Ruby, before we started recording, how you and I were briefly discussing that it, it feels like for some of us that the mindfulness work, the therapy, the dark nights of the soul, the questioning our identity and purpose, like really, really excavating a lot of the trauma that I feel like certainly the three of us and, and many, many of our listeners and, and longtime supporters have been doing similar work like this, that it's been training us to deal with the, basically, as, as Whitney said, the rug being completely pulled out from all of us right now, that not just the societal structures, but certainly what we were discussing about our identity, our purpose. For me, as I, I mentioned to you, Ruby, you know, my somewhat toxic link between my level of productivity and financial success or creative success with my worth as an individual and seeing mm -hmm. that just becoming shattered. And mm -hmm. it reminds me of, of a book that I read years ago, Pima Chodron wrote, mm -hmm. uh, When Things Fall Apart. And we've talked a little bit about Zen Buddhism here and the philosophy of non-attachment and letting go of identity and how externalized material things don't define who we are. And it feels like so many of us are just getting that lesson over and over again right now, certainly with our pocketbooks and our investments and and just the the transient, ever-changing nature of reality here. And that if we ever thought we had some semblance of control or we had some semblance of being able to predict the future, that all of that is just dissolving right before our eyes. And I guess it goes back to just go back a few minutes with you, you know, Rue, that you experienced the loss of a partnership, you know, that was well over a decade long and this sense of your motherhood and being a family caretaker and all of these things you mentioned. You know, what I want to know is, is in that dark night of the soul and in the darkness where we, you, you had a chance to look at yourself without those titles anymore, without those identifiers anymore, and honoring and letting go of the loss of those roles, when you did feel overcome by, say, anger, jealousy, toxicity, hatred, self-pity, what were the, the tools that you employed, the specifically asking, because I'm sure the listeners want to know, what do you do when that comes up? When you're processing that kind of pain, how do you handle that? How do you move through it? How do you allow it? How do you allow yourself to feel it without it overtaking you and destroying you? I guess that's the best question. I think the only way around it is through. I would literally sit, you know, in the dark or not dark, but it was dark. Sit, you know, when I would, I would get flooded with feeling and I would get, I would say, okay, I'm not going to go, you know, just answer emails. I'm going to go give that some space. I'm feeling it right now. It's 10 a.m. I'm supposed to be answering these emails, but I'm going to go sit in my room and let this feeling flood over me. 
and just watch whatever it is and cry. Sometimes I would just wail and just let it out and just sit with how uncomfortable just the discomfort and the agitation, the fear, the doubt of what was coming. I had no idea how I was going to make money, no idea what my future was going to be, where I was going to live. Just let it wash over me. And just by doing that and giving it space and giving it space over and over and over, whenever it needed to come out, it started to actually become nourishing instead of draining. And then I turned to what feels good to me, which is drawing. And it was maybe one of the most productive times in my art. Not because I was selling or putting anything out, but because things were just flooding out of me. And I think as I processed all this energy that was running through me, it was clearing the decks. I had my life force flood back. I had my sexuality flood back. And my creativity was flowing. I kept saying, I just feel so full. And it was full of grief and full of love and discovering that, like, no matter what anybody else did on the outside, you know, my partner or my no longer partner, that I honor in my heart, I honor what I had and what I built. And nobody can take that away from me. So, discovering that about myself, oh my God, my love is so big that no matter what anybody else does, it's intact. And just sitting with that, that's, that's what I mean, discovering who you are. It's like I wouldn't have known had I not given myself the space of just quiet and letting the decks be cleared. And I wrote, and that's in, in Bad Day too, in the children's book. Like I wouldn't have known till I tried just to give it space. And I think you start adapting things maybe you've learned in your professional life that make you a pro. Like to me, being a pro is putting your catcher's mitt up and saying, I got this, whatever it is. You know, and at first, maybe early in my career when the publisher wanted me to change, you know, massive things in the book, it like destroyed me. Like I would sweat and shake and felt like the project was ending. And then by the second and third book, I learned going in, this is a group effort and things are going to change and not to be so attached to whatever my attachment is <laughs> going in. And so now, you know, in projects that came later when those kind of emails come in saying, that, you know, that pull the rug out from beneath you, my attitude is more like, okay, I got this. This is another notch in my belt. And that, that I try to apply that same feeling in my personal life, in my relationships, like, oh, whatever this is, my mitts up, I got it. Um, I'm, I know what this is. I'm going to deal with it. This is going to be, you know, at worst, another notch on my belt of experience. It sounds like a combination of not only resilience, certainly building our resolve as we survive really painful, really confusing, scary, and traumatic situations in our life. But it seems like the flip side of resilience in this situation is also is also surrender. And I know that word gets tossed around a lot, as does you know authenticity and vulnerability. But in the actual practical application of this, Rue, it's like, okay, it's almost as if you survive enough things and you go through enough things And then the next time something comes up, it's not as debilitating or traumatizing or painful because you remember what you've gone through. Just to interrupt, yeah, maybe it's still debilitating, but you're able to move through it knowing what it is. Ah, right. The other thing too that came up for me as you were describing this process, Ruby, is 
a question that I often wrestle, I wrestle with a lot of questions. I, I sit, I sit and meditate and wrestle with a lot of questions and don't have answers and that's okay. One of the things is the conditioning I've observed, I guess probably growing up in my family unit, but to extrapolate it in society in general is this idea of attachment and how attachment is often equated to the depth of love that we have for a person, a relationship, our career, or our, our identity, because that seems to be what we're, we're touching on in this, in this episode. And if we can, I don't know, not necessarily dissolve our attachment or maybe have a healthier attachment so that if something doesn't go the way we expected or we realize we don't have control or the proverbial, again, rug gets pulled out from under us, that we maintain our center and we maintain our sense of self as this thing leaves our reality. And I know that's something I still am extremely challenged by because I get, I get so wrapped up in, I don't know, it's, it's like that, that the line from the Fleetwood Mac song, uh, what is it, landslide? Like, I've been afraid of changing because I built my life around you. And it's this thing of like, I built my life around being a vegan chef. I built my life around being in a relationship with this woman. I built my life around making a certain amount of money. And that ties into my masculine identity of how valuable I am as a man in this society. And I think it's just interesting because, I don't know, I guess I'm, the point I'm getting to is this idea of investing in our careers and relationship and art because of the idea that there's going to be some sort of payoff. There's going to be some great reward at the end of it. Oh, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have a life partner. I'm going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. And I say all of this because I'm still learning to wean myself off of that mentality that if I just put enough love and focus and attention and effort into something, it'll result in X. And I'm finding more and more that that is complete illusion and that's not reality. That There are no guarantees. I find it helpful for me to not think of the gold pot at the end of the rainbow, but like each project being a success, even if it's not a project you put out, but like a thing you crossed off your to-do list today, like that's good enough. You did it you know, this project getting done or this thing that I'm working on this week, just tackling it, that's enough for now. Um, And thinking more like short-term goals instead of long-term because uh, I've watched enough artists and enough enough entrepreneurs around me to go through ups and downs and ups and downs and, and just know, even though it's no less disturbing when it happens, that you're gonna be in cycles. You're going to be in constant cycles and your greatest, biggest project you think is your masterpiece. You're still going to have to figure out what's next after that. I mean, I found myself in 2012 on the Today Show. I was 26 and I got all this major media around my second book, Vegan is Love. It was quote unquote controversial. And when it all died down, I remember being in the shower and having like a moment of panic. Like, oh my God, did I just fucking peek? At 26, I'm never going to get that level of attention and publicity again. What am I going to do now? And just switching my mindset to like, okay, that's its own masterpiece. And now I'll create a new little masterpiece and it'll be different. And it might not get as much attention, but it's in the creation where I want to find meaning. It's so beautiful. And it reminds me of uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who Jason actually has referenced a few times with her book, Beyond Magic, right? Is that what it's called? 
It's called uh, it's called Big Magic. Big yes. Magic. Thank you. Yes. I was like, that doesn't sound right. Big Beyond Magic. Ma- Beyond Magic sounds cool, though, too. It does. That'll it does. be a follow-up. <laughs> Guaranteed. By, by the makers of Beyond Meat, <laughs> Beyond Magic. <laughs> I'm sure it well, works. I, you know, she shared how a similar emotion to yours, Ruby, when, when um, people... So I think it was based on a comment she received from somebody who was like, how does it feel to have... Uh, such a successful book and knowing that your success might all be behind you, you know, it's, or something, it was something along those lines of, you know, her, her book, Eat, Pray, Love was so huge and it just made such a splash and it, it gave her so much notoriety, but yet she's still making other work. And actually she's similar in a lot of ways to what you've been expressing, Ruby, where her other work has been quite different from Eat, Pray, Love. You know, it's not like she's just churning out a ton of similar books. I mean, Big Magic was kind of like a book for other creative people. And then her latest book, I think it's called City of Girls or City of Women. I want to read it, even though it, it sounds so different from those other two books that I've read. But I just like her. And I, I think that that is what I think of in your case, Ruby. It's like, yeah, your art may be different than what your current fans are used to. But I, for one, I'd love you as a person. And so no matter what you do, it's still interesting to me because you're making it. And that's true with so many people that I enjoy online is that I'm okay with them changing because I'm not attached to what they create. I'm connected to who they are as people. And I think that that is like one of the most important things for us all to remember is it's okay for us to evolve with what we're creating and putting out there. And ultimately, you know, Jason asked me this a while back. I didn't really address it. But for me, as I evolve and consider what I want to put out in the world and, and quote, rebrand myself, you know, similar to Ruby, moving away from being known as Eco Vegan Gal, which I started over 10 years ago, and then really just owning my name, you know, as like mm-hmm. my avatar, moniker, whatever you want to call it. It's like I want to use that because that's who I am. I don't want to be like, some masked crusader online, like creating content that is like a separate persona. Like I want to express who I am right now in my life. That feels more powerful. Well, your your outlook is so beautiful. Like you are the ultimate follower or fan. And that goes back to what we say, what we were talking about in the beginning about trauma and being seen and heard. It's like you are actually doing the work to see the people that you follow. And that, that right. just when you said that, it's so comforting to me because if I felt that way, if I, I felt like the people who follow me were a sea of people who whose outlook matched yours, God, I would be so relieved. Like, maybe they are. Maybe they, maybe are. they just it, don't even realize totally. it. <laughs> and and that, that goes back to me building my own solid ground um, yeah. and feeling secure and like, uh, also the fuck you energy. Are we allowed to <laughs> Like that's been helping me so much. Like what Jason can relate to that, I think. It's a driving force and it feels real good. Even what do you okay say that to yourself? Like Yeah, Ruby, when you say that, like I have my own version of that, which is why Whitney had her her reaction. Uh-huh. Like I have my own version of fuck you energy. But describe the energetics of what that is for you. Like when you say fuck you energy, what does that mean to you? It's a mix of things. I'm just gonna flow out what it what it feels like. It means I totally give up. Fuck all that project. I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm going to go for something different or fuck all that pressure. I'm putting myself to be one thing or to hit some other level. I'm just going to be. And I'm an artist in my core. 
That's who I am. If I never sell anything again, my core is still an artist. I'm a thinker. I'm a creator. I need to write things down. I need to draw things. And I need to remember then that no matter what's going on in the outside world, when I get up in the morning, the way I make my bed is my art. And the way I handle friendships is my art. And the way I put my dishes away is my art. The way I clean up my house and organize and decorate my space, that's my art. And that's me without anything that has to do with the outside world. And getting to that kind of fire burning with that, like knowing I don't need anything. I don't need any of you. I don't need social media. I don't need my newsletter. I exist fully, completely without you. And that's really hard. I don't feel that all the time, but I get tastes of it. And when I do, it feels really good. It feels like solid ground. And that's, I made this little animation. It lives on my website. It's called The Virus when lockdown started happening. And it's this woman going to the mountain and she's asking the mountain for help. And the mountain says, oh, you know, you want another chance? I've, I've given you all so many chances, but okay, right now I'm going to pause time and you figure out who you are without any of this outside world and find out, you know, what's meaningful to you. What do you know about medicine? What do you know about healing? What do you know about your own masculinity or your own femininity? What do you know about food and farming and relations to other and negotiations and being a leader or being part of a fellowship? Those are all really important things that we should all be figuring out ourselves because it has nothing to do with producing anything, has nothing to do with the outside world or our jobs. It has to do with us finding meaning in ourselves, what's meaningful to us, and what makes us feel safe, and what we can do with our own hands and with the people that we know. So that no matter what goes on in the outside world, we've got this very human system built in that, you know, we can meet our own needs on a primal level. Absolutely. I think a lot of this too is like redefining what it means to be successful for ourselves. And Something that actually came up earlier today in a in a online meeting that I was on it was more like a a, a group chat and and a support group in a way and and one really insightful thing that somebody said is like it's really more about finding personal satisfaction and figuring out what that means and it goes back to what you were saying earlier too Ruby it's like did you feel satisfied with your life today and what you did because I think a lot of the times we define success on what other people think, you know, it's like so much about the external, you know, do people like this? Did I get the validation that I want? Did I, people buy what I'm selling or did they like what I posted on social media or are they following me? It's right. like, to me, at least that has been success. Right. And it's really just a word that you can define however you want. But I love that idea of personal satisfaction. And one thing I think I've really learned from this time of shutdown, lockdown, stay at home, quarantine, all of that is like tapping into, do I feel good today? And if all I did was survive, that in itself is a success. If I can wake up the next day and just start it new and tap into how I'm really feeling and know that like how I'm feeling one day could be completely different from the next. And at the end of the day, if I can go to bed and feel like I had some peace and and be grateful and just feel simply satisfied with that day, that to me is the ultimate form of success. Yeah. And maybe it's not what you got even. Maybe it's because 
you know, you felt bad and agitated, you made zero dollars today, and you decided, okay, I remember what's meaningful to me is connection with other people and being part of a community. And so you called a friend and lent an ear to someone else having a hard time. And you, you being there for them gives you some solid satisfaction in your heart, makes you feel settled. So it might right. not even it's be like- what you get, but what you give that day. Yes, absolutely. We we also recently on the different episode talked about the energy of giving versus receiving. Mm-hmm. And I think the same can be true too, is we're encouraged to give so much, especially as entrepreneurs and creatives. It's like we're measured by how much we give to other people. And oftentimes we're just not feeling like we're receiving much in return. And, and I find like it's such an interesting dance because There's also different energies to both of that. Like, are you giving just to receive (laughs) or are you giving so much that you don't even pause to receive? Like, are you, are you even allowing yourself to receive? And what is it that you're receiving? Are you, are you receiving something emotionally or physically or is it financial? Is it a relationship thing? And there's so many different factors here. And, And sometimes we're just depleted. Sometimes we deplete ourselves by giving too much. And sometimes we deplete ourselves by focusing too much on what we can receive because we're not giving it, you know, from our hearts. Or from a, from a genuine place. Um, I can say that I, I was, I've been really uncomfortable in, in 2019 as I was trying to put my, you know, feminine figurative work forward. And then I had another children's book come out, Bad Day came out. And um, being uncomfortable with its landing in the outside world. And it was a harder book to get people's attention around because, you know, in the last couple of years, there's just floods and everyone's so overstimulated and everyone's over newsletters. And it's harder now to get people's attention than it was in the past for me. And then realizing, okay, I put this thing out. It was so much energy. I'm not getting back what I receive necessarily as as far as media coverage or um, whatever it is. And then accepting, okay, it's just going to be a slower, longer burn. And also, holy shit, maybe my heart wasn't totally in that book. I love that book. It's a real and true, genuine piece of me and my thinking. But where I'm at right now, I'm not in the children's world. I'm not in a family anymore right now. Right now, I'm still getting on my own two feet in my womanhood. And maybe that's why, because I was like trying, trying, trying around this thing that wasn't even genuine to where I'm at right now. And You're just, for, like forcing it. Yeah. And just being okay. Yeah. Like, okay, put that out. It was, is, that's the timing of how all of this this unraveled. And um, I'm just going to be okay with it. It's okay. It didn't land exactly how I wanted it. But all right, another notch on my belt. Keep it moving. I'm going to keep promoting it. And it's part of my collection of my life masterpiece, not just like I'm trying to hit the bestsellers list right now in, you know, September 2019. Well, I hope that you don't give up on it because it's such a beautiful offering. And it's so interesting too. It's like, maybe it didn't feel like it was fully resonating with your heart, but it's, you know, for me, it really hit home. So I'm so grateful that you produced it. And yet it's kind of like a lot of things artist wise, you know, you could have a favorite song and realize it was like the musician's like least favorite song they've ever done. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's such a matter of perspective, you know, it's not genuine. Like I, that book really is genuine to me and it's totally relevant still to what's going on inside of me now. But as far as like promotion, I wasn't wanting to go speak in schools. 
and do Mm. readings in children's circles. I'm drawing women now and women's bodies and telling those stories. So it's just like, you know, realizing it's just things don't turn out the way you think they're going to. That's it. That's all it is. And you keep it moving. You keep producing because the satisfaction is in the creation. I think the thing that also arises for me is a question. This is for all of us. The idea of initiating a new project or a piece of art, book, video at all. I mean, we can name different, different kinds of media here that we have all done. And we've all, three of us have put out, you know, books and products and and all those things. To me, the energy feels very different if I am sitting down with a specific purpose and intention of trying to get a specific result from that piece of art mm. versus creating for creation's sake. And and it reminds me, I mean, there's so many stories, but it reminds me of when, in the early days of the Rolling Stones, Andrew Lou Goldham, their producer, he would lock Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. <laughs> there's one story of him locking them like in a bathroom of a flat <laughs> for like 24 hours or something like that and saying like, you guys are not coming out till you write a fucking hit. Like- you're going to sit in this bathroom and write and write and write until you give me a fucking hit. Like that's a very focused, hardcore approach to, okay, we're not just writing to write. We're writing because you know our producer is telling us we have to give him a hit song. And it's this idea of how many artists in the world create out of a sense of pressure or expectation or duress of you have to create this fucking thing. And they do it from that place versus, you know what? I'm just going to like allow it to organically strike me and quote, let the muse visit me. And I'm curious, you know, how you both feel about that of like, okay, I have this idea of it has to be this thing and there's a very specific direction and we're going to do this because we have to achieve this fucking thing versus I'll let the muse strike me when it wants to strike me. I personally feel both ways. I think Picasso said inspiration has to find you working. So in one sense, I create space where I know I'm going to sit down and work and just see what comes out. So there's definitely that. I have that in a practice like, okay, tonight at 6 p.m. I'm going to draw. And tomorrow night at 6 p.m. I'm going to draw. And the next night at 6 p.m. I'm going to draw. And then on the other hand, I keep, bad day was written this way. I keep a document in my computer. And every time I have an idea, I go back and add a little more to it. Zero pressure not like I'm writing a book this year. And that book was written over the course of probably a few years. And you're planting seeds. And then all of a sudden, the project's done. and Or it's close to finish. And you didn't pressure yourself all that much. And if you give yourself that space and wiggle room, you know, both time and space to work. And also like, I'm not going to create this without an end goal in mind. It's a good combo. And you don't know what you're planting seeds with. Bad Day just won a Nautilus Book Award, which I'm really, really proud of. Books for a Better World. I didn't see that coming. And everything around Bad Day was quiet for a while. I just kind of let go. Like, okay, I'm just going to sleep on that for a little bit. And so you don't know, but the work is in the process. Just keep, you keep producing. You find little ways to trick yourself. You know, like make a nice space for yourself make it a ritual. I light candles and turn down, you know, the lights and put music on and draw and stuff comes out that I wasn't expecting. Um, So I feel both, like I said, both ways. There's 
forcing yourself to, to create space, maybe that's more important than product and also just doing things as they occur to you. Yeah, it is really interesting, like the creative process too, and all the different phases of it and the different ways that you can go. I mean, as a writer, you, you can force yourself to write X amount of words every day, no matter what. I think that actually works really well because it gets you out of the resistance and it gets you into the flow. And and like you said, the key is to be unattached to the results that you get, just like after you've put it out there in the world. You know, a lot of the times, Jason and I have talked about this so many times, it's like you can feel so disappointed when you're too attached to getting something. And when it doesn't work out, it is just that horrible sinking feeling like the relationship didn't work out or the job you wanted, the gig you wanted, the validation you wanted, the money you wanted, all those things. Like I've just worked more and more to let go of expectation because it feels so much better when you get something you weren't expecting to me. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's that's just such a, a huge challenge with us personally and professionally is that our expectations can be so high. And then we get into that comparison trap. You, we see other people getting something. We think, okay, I'm going to do things just like they did. And I'm going to get the same results or better. And it's horrible for me when I try to do something, follow a strategy, and then I don't get the same results that somebody else did. I feel awful. I feel like I did something wrong. There's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. How come that person got it and I didn't? I mean, that happened to me at the beginning of 2020 with a project. I was doing this... um, Actually, it happened a couple of times <laughs> at the end of 2000, yeah, like, 2019 and, and 2020. Very similar experiences. I was uh, Jason and I were in one together and doing this group promotion project. And it just like, I, I remember even just thinking about it. I'm going back to all that stress I felt because I was, I was like feeling kind of competitive or in that comparison mode all the time. And, and one of the projects I was working on, it was like, they would send these email updates like, here's the leaderboard of, of what people are getting. And, and they were thinking it was going to motivate. And maybe it was like maybe some people really work well when they feel like they're competing. But for me, one thing I've learned and, and known for many years, is like I don't do well in a competition environment. There's an element of it that I that sometimes pushes me like I do have a slightly competitive side. It's not non-existence, but for the most part trying to beat somebody is so unpleasant and it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't work for somebody else, right. but and, I, and I just like... You're trying to beat yourself. I mean, that's like right. who loses in the end. <laughs> you. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, my friend was telling me last night a different perspective. She was um, you doing a spinning class online and... Uh, you're able to like see the leaderboards on there. And she was like, it was so frustrating when I was paying attention to how everybody else was doing and how I was in context. But when I switched and tried to beat myself or to basically compare my progress to yesterday's progress, and she started to find it was more motivating when she was just trying to look at her own results. Like, how did she do compared to yesterday? Right? Is she is she like working harder or not? And is it, are you going to beat yourself up if you don't do as well as you did previously? Like it just helped her have a more balanced relationship versus trying so hard to look at herself in comparison to other people because there's just too many factors, right? I mean, whether it's 
it's relationships or fitness or your body size, your age, like all of these factors, we can't control most of them, right? And even with our businesses, we, tr- we think that we can follow a formula or the same thing is true since all of us have, have done a lot of work in the content creation and influencer space and online world. It feels really tempting to compare, you try to measure yourself against somebody else, basically, whether it's like your follower count or how many likes you get in a post or how well did your book sell? All three of us having books. It's like, how many reviews did your book get? And like, did it land on the bestseller list and all of these things? And like, I don't know. I can agree with you so much, Ruby. When I when I think about my book project, I just felt so good about publishing a book. I really didn't care that much about how many reviews I got on Amazon, you know, but like the publishers want you to care about those things. So you feel all this pressure. And like, I didn't want to be that person who's like, bragging about getting on some bestseller list, but I would find myself trying to use that to validate it, my book. And I'm like, this just feels gross to me. Yeah. You know, like, I don't want to like parade around whatever success I've had because I just don't, I don't really feel like that matters that much. Does it matter to other people? (laughs) You know, you know, the difference, the feeling inside yourself when something is a challenge that's hard, but you know, you want to do it. And something that feels completely disingenuous to to try mm-hmm. and do maybe talking to the camera about your book is like something you feel like you need to do but yes it's not genuine to you so don't do it you know what i mean like you got to ease up on yourself and find what's genuine cuz only what's genuine is going to is really going to work absolutely yeah. i really can relate to to what you were saying ruby about your process with like writing things bit by bit and I'm so glad that you said that because that reaffirms it for me. Sometimes just hearing that other people are doing that and it's worked for them, you're like, oh, okay. Like it's funny how how we often like want permission. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you do that too. All right, then I'm not the only one, so I'm gonna keep doing. <laughs> and I hope that people listening have a similar experience because that's one of our big aims is to remind people that they're not alone. But I love that process. I, I do that too, constantly. I mean, even something that. One of you said earlier, I went and wrote down in my little notebook for one of my future projects that has been in development. And I found myself so many times trying to rush myself to put it out there. Like, okay, like I need, I need to get this out there in the world. And it's like, maybe if I don't do it now, then I'm going to miss out on something. We have this like FOMO mm-hmm. or this rush, this hustle, like you got to go, 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 and you can't delay anymore. And like, it's really tough whether you're, you're doing something creative or something that's simply just heart-centered, it's really tough to rush it because it doesn't feel right when you try to rush something like that. And I really encourage people, any kind of creative people or any people with goals, I guess guess goals, period. They often say like you have five seconds between an idea and, and executing before you like lose interest in it which I think is really funny because I, I know that feeling. But to write things down, I really encourage people just as soon as you have an idea about something, just write it down. And it's okay if it's on like a big piece of craft paper and it's not organized. Just get it down on paper. And once it's down on paper, it's in progress. Even if you don't touch it again for a couple of years, that idea was sparked and it's in your queue. And I have a big piece of craft paper on a roll that I roll out every January of a new year. And I write down things 
that I want to do, and I move things from last year that I didn't do onto the new piece. And that's also helped me like kind of chill out about like, okay, a year is not very much time at all. And so if you don't get it done this year, you just move it to the next year. You don't get it done this month, move it to the next month's to-do list. But as long as it's there, it's in your mind, and it's something that your creativity and the muse can strike at, and you can add to it. And things get done that way. That's like, that's being an artist. It's not selling an idea or selling a product. It's in the process of um, creation. The one thing that I want to just dip back to really quickly is the competitive side of all of this. And to me, I, I brought up this quote in a previous episode about uh, Martina Navratilova, who is a, one of the, she is one of the most famous tennis players in the world, one of the most celebrated and winning tennis players. And she said, the moment of victory is too short to live for that and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And that's always stuck with me because if I'm honest about it and I look back at my entire life, really, there's always been this idea that if I just uh, do X, I'll give a few examples. Like, and this is not a humble brag by any stretch. It's just the first thing that came to mind. Like, I remember in college when I was in at Columbia, I was like, I'm going to graduate with a 4.0. Like, I'm now. Why? Why was that important? Like, I wasn't trying to get a master's degree. I wasn't trying to go to an Ivy League school. After that, it was just this idea that I want to show that I'm better than everyone else. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. You're all idiots. I'm going to get a 4.0. It was like this very competitive, like psychotic drive. And I did it. And like, no one gives a shit. Like, <laughs> since literally since college, no one, <laughs> no one has ever fucking asked me, oh, did you graduate Columbia with a 4.0? You were summa cum laude? No one gives a fuck. Yeah. But I did it because somehow it felt like I needed to prove I'm better than all of you. It was the same thing. And I remember saying this out loud to people before I did How to Live to 100 on Cooking Channel. I remember, I remember looking at specific other like vegan chefs in our industry. I, I don't need to name who they were, but they were like, whatever, quote, doing better than me at the time. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be the first vegan chef in history with a primetime series on a major network. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Mm-hmm. And I did it. And then literally like a few months after that, it was like, who cares? It faded. It faded. And then somebody else is claiming that they're the first to do it because they forgot that you did it. And it's like That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like it's it like so rem- who gives a shit? It reminds me of a similar emotion I felt, which is like, well, I'm gonna prove that person. Like I've I actually felt that recently and I was reflecting on it. Like like uh somebody said no to me, rejected me in some way, you know, to some project. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to prove to them like one day they'll see like and they'll regret not, you know, doing this with me, you know, and how many times have you guys felt that emotion? I mean, it's it's countless for me. I think back to high school, you know, and like whether it's a guy that didn't like me and I'm like, I'm going to prove them and that one day they're going to regret not giving me a chance. And then, you know, it's like there is that cultural narrative and and you see that happening in the media sometimes like like uh, what just came to mind is is some like artist that's rejected. They're on American Idol and the judges don't pick them and then they become like a huge pop star. And it's totally like, the joke's on them for not seeing their potential. And it's like, Again, who cares? Like, if you get the success, the satisfaction that you want, that's all that matters. Like, it's not like somebody's going to sit at home and they can't fall asleep because they regret not 
you know, working with you at the time. You know? Totally. The, the approval really or the approval or someone's purchase of something that you made is literally should be the icing on the cake. And that's it. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because what, what you were describing, Whitney, in addition to the competitive nature that is definitely encouraged in our society, there's almost a sense of revenge or vindictiveness that's intertwined in that. Yep. And absolutely. Re- and recently, I know we mentioned this on a previous episode that is currently airing at the time of this recording, The Last Dance 10-part docuseries about Michael Jordan and the Bulls. I mean, Michael Jordan is you know, one of the great cultural luminaries of our era. You know, Pretty much, I, probably most people on the planet know who Michael Jordan is. He was quoted as saying, because people were taking him to task about his gambling addiction, and apparently that he is so competitive that it spills over into other areas beyond basketball, investing, business, gambling. And to paraphrase a quote that I saw from him yesterday, he said, no, no, people think I have a gambling addiction. He's like, I don't have a gambling addiction. He said, I have a competitiveness addiction and gambling is just part of that. He's like, you know, get it right. And so my thing is like, if we can frame competitiveness and the counterpart vindictiveness that often goes along with it as an addiction, I think we need to look at that as a cultural part of our mental health process. And I mean this honestly, because if I look at how devoid of satisfaction I felt so much when I've gotten into that, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to be the first to do it. I'm going to be the best at this. And then how empty I felt afterward. I mean, that's really kind of the nature of addiction, isn't it? Is this idea that if I accomplish this, this thing, be this thing, do this thing, take this drug, enjoy this experience, and then I feel empty, well, I must need to do it more or harder or better or more ferociously so I can do it over and over again. But then we celebrate people. Oh, you sold 10 million records. Oh, you won the world championship. They're so competitive. It's like, but do we ever stop and ask, is that healthy? Yeah. Well, <laughs> good question. I look at the both of you and like, you guys have been, you know, good friends for a long time, but I value you guys so much it has nothing to do with what you've sold. <laughs> it's like, I find you guys inspiring because you think and you execute. And you think and you execute again and you keep going. And it's like, it's, it's your energy that I value. And, and, and that's like the greatest compliment, just like you were saying earlier, Ruby. It's like what I was saying about your art, like I value you. And like hearing that from you, now I can relate to what you were saying when I, when I gave you my perspective on you, like how you felt comfort in that. That's so comforting to me to hear. Because I think culturally, we're conditioned to feel like we have to prove our worth all the time. You know, like somebody's not going to love me if I don't do this or that, or I'm not valuable to this person. I have to prove my value in order for them to care about me and want to be around me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sticky trap. And it's not really how anybody who truly values you sees you anyway. So what what are you working for? Right. I think it's true with love too. And Jason, I'd love you to chime in on this. It's like for all all the ups and downs each of us have been through since we've known each other and the different relationships we've seen each other through and those moments of being friends with somebody and seeing them go through all this pain and feeling like they're not lovable. And then as a friend, you're like, what do you mean? Like You're an incredible person. And it's so tough to see your friends feel that way about themselves. And it's so important for us to support one another, remind each other of our innate worthiness and our, our beauty beyond whatever we think our flaws are, 
you know, our age or, you know, our weight, our size of any shape and all of these things that we focus on and we think are going to make people reject us. Yeah. To me, what this harkens back to is in my personal life, a remnant of childhood from this idea of survival and trying to avoid further abandonment. You know, I've mentioned this, I think maybe even, uh, I don't remember what episode. We've talked about this in the early, early days of the podcast that as I experienced and compartmentalized the abandonment I felt from my father leaving when I was very, very young, my overcompensation, one of my ways of overcompensating psychologically as a child was learning that, oh, I'm people perceive me as entertaining and funny and cute, right? Like I bring positive energy, I entertain people, I make them laugh, I make them feel better when I'm in the room, when I act a certain way. And then that remnant psychologically has been a thread through into my adult life of I've got to be the bright light, I've got to be the jokester, I've got to be the most entertaining guy in the room, I have to be the extrovert and make everyone feel good. Because if everyone's feeling good, and everyone's having a good time, guess what? They're going to go, oh, I feel so good when Jason's around. And if they feel so good when I'm around, guess what? I'm never going to be abandoned again. So it's a compensatory mechanism that I created as a child to be like, if I'm entertaining you, making you laugh, making you feel good, then I'm abandonment proof. So it becomes a security blanket and a, and a protectionist mechanism that, to be honest, a lot of times I don't want to be the fucking brightest light in the room. If I'm feeling it and I'm emo and I mean... I'm a very sensitive person. Maybe I just want to be sad. Maybe I want to allow that. Maybe, you know, it's okay if I go into a room and people are like, oh, what's wrong, Jason? You're not making everybody laugh. You're not like Mr. Mojo. I'm like, because I don't fucking want to be. I don't want to like have to play that role. And, and I'm identifying how much I've played into that mechanism subconsciously and how much I no longer want to do it. And how about in your romantic relationships, Jason? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. It's if I'm. This is the funny thing too, because it's like, if I'm the most generous, loving, if I'm the best lover you've had, if I'm the most attentive, if I'm the most sensitive and listen to you, if I, if I do all the things, quote, a good boyfriend ought to do, whatever I deem that to be, same thing, then I'm abandonment proof. You'll never leave me. You'll never take your love away. But the funny thing is, whether it's, I'm going to do all the perfect things as a TV host or an author or a chef or an artist or a boyfriend or a son. It's like, there are no guarantees of anything Like you can, all of us can do quote the perfect thing and check off all of the perceived boxes of what th we think we ought to do in that role in our lives. And the three of us certainly know, and the listener probably identifies maybe with this too. It's like, there's no guarantee of anything. There's no guarantee that person's going to stay. There's no guarantee that the relationship is going to go the way you want. There's no guarantee that your TV show is going to get renewed or your book's going to sell well. There, there just are zero guarantees, even if you think you're playing the perfect role of whatever you think this thing ought to be. Like, I've learned that over and over and over and over. And so I think it begs the question, can we release ourselves from the outcome or trying to manipulate an outcome in our life and just show up the best we can? And I also think it's so important for each of us to talk about these things because I think for the three of us, I don't know if it's if if it's a generational thing or not or a cultural thing, but there's so much of this like keeping up with the Joneses and people not talking about their struggles. Like we want to hide our mistakes. We want to hide the lows in our life. We don't want anyone to know what's not going right in our lives, whether it's our relationships, 
and trying to pretend like our relationship is so much better than it actually is. Like, oh, everybody thinks that we have the perfect relationship and let's keep it that way. But the problem with that, whether it's personal or professional, is that you perpetuate this idea that it has to be that way. Otherwise, you're a failure. And then if people don't actually see what is not going super well all the time, then other people feel like there's something wrong with them. It's like on social media, the highlight reel. Everybody's, well, not everybody, but most people, at least uh, up until the current time is showing like all the things that are going so well and like my great house and the great cars and my great boyfriend and my great kids and my, you know, everything's great, great, great. But you're seeing like literally a second of somebody's life, that moment that photo was taken or the video or the couple seconds that that video was taken. But what about the rest of their lives? And, and people not showing these things creates this idea, whether we realize it or not, that like if our life doesn't look like that all the time, then we're doing something wrong. And there's something wrong with us because everybody else is succeeding. But like if we don't feel that pretty or that successful or if our relationships aren't going as well, then something's wrong with us. And I think it's so important to speak about those challenges and share the the lowlights in our life just as much as we share the highlights. I try purposefully to to share some of that through my artwork on say Instagram or my newsletter because it really bothers me that someone might think everything's perfect on this end or look at her she's made it when I hustling every single day, juggling 5 million things and doing way more than anybody, you know, on the outside or, you know, in the social media world could even imagine that I'm doing to keep things afloat. So I like putting a little darkness out there because I think people relate to it and, you know, they want to celebrate the highs too. And they want to know you as a person, just like we all do on personal levels. Like, what we're all saying is, is we value each other because of personal things, because we've sat down with each other in, in hard times and we've sat, you know, and high-fived, you know, at our book signings. I think everybody, you know, as, as much as the digital age has kind of isolated and made things, you know, so, so branded and so much pressure, it's, it's also like, now people, the backlash is that people are hungry for authenticity and, um, and re- authentic authenticity as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the interesting thing now. And, and I struggle with this on social media is like, I have to read, it's almost like, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to like train myself to share authentically because for over 10 years, each of us, I mean, we've been in this world of like, only share the perfect things, like make sure you take 100 photos and then just pick that one photo that looks the best. And then make sure you edit it and write the perfect caption. Like, that's how we've been trained. I mean, at, at least I can say so. And that's the culture of social media and Instagram. And like, I know Jason has often said to me that he just doesn't feel like posting. He doesn't want to share every moment of his life. And he doesn't want to have to feel like he's camera ready. And I feel that way too. And it leads me to not posting as frequently, but, but just thinking this better. through. <laughs> yeah, my life is better for sure. But then I'm like, gosh, like it's this weird balance where it's like you also don't want to plan to be authentic because that in itself is not authentic, you know? And then it's like easier to just not post at all. 
because I don't want to like change my voice when I get on camera, but I've been trained to do that. So it's like I have to like untrain myself and like find the bravery to post a picture without makeup. And I've done that a few times. It's still incredibly uncomfortable to not wear makeup or do my hair or put a filter on. And I just feel so vulnerable in those moments. And I feel so much more comfortable taking the perfect photo and editing it. But I'm I'm like trying to get away from that because it just doesn't feel right to me most of the time. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it doesn't. And it's that weird transition that we've been talking about throughout this episode is like, as you work on your shifting the way that you do things and then trying not for it to be too contrived either. Like, I don't want to get on there and like be vulnerable because I'm trying to manipulate people to like me more when I'm vulnerable. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you see this on social media, like people that that try to like use their vulnerability to get more followers or to get more likes or something like that. And then itself that starts to feel cringy because you're like, okay, I like this vulnerability, but now it feels contrived. It feels like you're manipulating me. Yes, I see a lot of that too. This is such an interesting subject because it I think it harkens back to a couple of things. It, it harkens back to when you see something working for someone else, let's copy it because clearly there's a formula at play. And I feel like this authenticity and vulnerability and mm. I don't want to use the word oversharing, but for lack of a better word in this moment, sometimes I do feel like content creators and artists, sometimes I'm like, I personally don't need that level of detail about your your life, the minutia of those specificities, but go for it, like whatever you want to share. To me, I think it's it's part of this broader idea of I want to do something because I'm trying to elicit a specific outcome and not just share something because it's my in my heart to share. And um, it reminds me of this interview I saw with with Gary Vaynerchuk uh, maybe last month where he didn't name someone specifically, but someone he was working with who she's become well known for posting uh, risque photos of herself, which is is pretty common on on Instagram in particular of you know, women in various and and guys in various states of undress, uh, showing their physical bodies and gaining a certain level of success and sponsorship and things like that. And or she was relaying to Gary Vaynerchuk that like, I don't really want to do this anymore because there are some things I want to share intellectually, you know, in terms of my interests and things I'm passionate about, the things I've actually studied in my life. But I feel like I quote can't do it because I've built up such an incredible level of success. This kind of goes back to how we started this: of you you brand yourself so specifically. She's like, I don't feel like I can stop sharing semi-nude pictures of myself because that's what I've built everything on. And if I start posting about biochemistry or my interests in you know, paleontology or whatever the hell she was talking about, people won't take it seriously and they'll be like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. It goes back to that fear of loss and, and change and letting go of something that you've worked so hard for. It's real. It's, it's a causes a physical feeling. There was a uh, something recently I was ruminating on because I'm I'm very much in this right now in the process of reevaluating in particular how I want to move forward with my relationship to creativity and and identity and all of this like I'm I'm really really in it and I don't know if I've ever, I've ever talked to you about it Ruby Whitney knows this because we've talked about it on the podcast uh, of me moving away from vegan chefing because it it doesn't resonate and I don't really have very much passion for it or feel creatively inspired. And I felt this way for a long time, but it really feels like I'm at a fork in the road and a, and a reckoning around this. And recently, 
it was actually the person that I've been currently dating at the time of this podcast said to me, just because you're really good at something doesn't mean you should do it or feel obligated to do it. And I feel like for a long time, I personally have felt obligated to keep doing the culinary work that I do because of the brand I've created, but also because I'm quote good at it, right? It's like, oh, well, you've been given this talent. You've cultivated this talent. You've spent 15 years working on it. You should keep doing it. But it's like my heart isn't in it anymore. And I think it's this hard thing of you see the proverbial carrot in society being dangled of book deals, money, success, attention. And But I think there's a certain point for maybe all of us that like your heart, your soul, whatever it is, is like, hey, you can't keep doing this anymore. Like you really can't. Like you really, really, really can't keep doing it. And I feel like I'm pretty damn close to that point of like, you need to surrender to your soul because your soul is saying like, you don't have anything left to give and you know you don't yeah. and stop forcing it. You might it. have a period of time where you do nothing and hopefully, you know, you've you have some savings to give yourself that space but to decide to do nothing for a while till the deck's clear and you gain some other clarity. When I talk to my girlfriends and what I call it in my life and you can call it something differently but I call it pussy power. Like listen, like go with what feels good. Like for me and the core of me and and where inside of me like knows everything is like my feminine, the core of my femininity. And so I call it pussy power. Like your pussy knows everything. (laughs) You know what to do. (laughs) And like, you know what to do. If it, if it feels good in the morning to like wash your face and do a face mask and go lay outside for 15 minutes, then that's what you should do. Because uh, maybe when you go, and even if you have 50,000 emails to answer or like a, to-do list that's you know super long if your body's telling you that follow it because if you go outside and you lay down in the sun that might be when like a really grand idea pops into your head and then you follow that and then you get on this path of feeling good and i swear i swear every time i really give into that something good happens absolutely i have a version of this ruby which is uh You better, because it'd be funny if yours was called Pussy Power too, Jason. It's definitely not Pussy Power. As a cat dad, I I mean, I mean, I could could be. Yeah, as as a cat dad, I could say that I derive my my powers from my felines, therefore Pussy Power. But uh, but my version of this is, I was working with a a great coach years ago uh, on on like acting and and stuff for you know TV performance. His name's Sky Redlove, and uh, we had a phrase which was like connecting with your power as you're describing Ruby. And we called it, put your dick in the dirt. Yes. (laughs) Which is like, go to like the core of the earth and imagine your dick like going to the core of the earth and drawing up the power of the core of the planet, like mother earth, like in through your dick and into your body. And was like, no, no, you're, dude, you're not being authentic in this. Put your dick in the dirt, Jason, put your dick in the dirt. And like, that was my power is like, listen to your intuition, get inspired by the earth, the muse, nature, like Put it in the dirt and see what happens. Yeah, that's your core. That's the gift of your masculinity too, that that energy. And this is the gift of my femininity. Yeah, well said. It's it's just a very it's a it's a return to the primal instinct and the primal inspiration and perhaps getting out of our own way. And and that meaning whatever shoulds or ought tos or manipulative ways we're trying to move through life, we just move beyond those things and and reconnect with a deeper 
a deeper connection to nature and life and inspiration. I, I think that's just such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And a great reminder that if we get too much in our heads, which I am apt to do, is to like, how do I get out of my head and reconnect with, yeah, I don't know, something more primal. And I see that in your, in your artwork, Ruby. You know, I remember when I bought a t-shirt of yours a couple years ago at the LA, I don't know, it wasn't the Renegade Craft Fair. Where the hell did I buy that shirt of yours? I don't know. I do so many. One of them. It was, some, it was some, one, of, one of the shows. And I was like, and I, I hadn't really ever seen that version of your, I mean, I had seen some of it, but I remember seeing your shirts and being like, damn, this is dope. And there was just a primal, raw, sensual, dark nature to it that I immediately connected with. She's a and girl. So I, I, she, the t-shirt you're describing is a girl. You're looking at her from um, the back and she's riding a skull and she's got kind of the punk rock hand signal. And she's naked. And she's naked. She's got her legs wrapped around the head of a, the, the like she's got her feet in the eyeball sockets. <laughs> and I get so many people that ask me, random people like, what does that shirt even mean? I'm like, I usually say, as you going back to the beginning of this episode, it's something about death and life and, you know, sort of as the mythology goes, like, you know, in the Greek mythology, you know, Dionysus riding the leopard without being torn to pieces. Mm-hmm. It's like this passion, like riding the knife's edge of life, knowing that you can get ripped to pieces at any moment. Yes. Like we all can, whether that's proverbially speaking, our identity getting ripped to shreds or literally our bodies getting, you know, destroyed and we go on to whatever the next incarnation is. Yeah, and- to me, she's a, she's my, I call her the rider muse. And it's really a sense of warriorship. And being able to tolerate life and death cycles. And just because you're in a death cycle or you're feeling a death cycle doesn't mean that you're not going to keep living. It ain't over. You're going to yeah. keep going. And expecting that and being able to identify life and death cycles is so helpful in our careers. And as we've been talking about in relationships too, like I was talking to a girlfriend the other day, she was, she was saying like, I, I think this really, my relationship is over. And I was like, Maybe part of it is. Maybe that's just the death cycle, but the relationship's not over. So I think it covers everything we've been talking about from you know reinvention to wanting to be liked and putting things out there and things not working out and you keep going. Like It is just building, building your resilience and tolerance and your willingness to go through the cycles that life throws at you and, and continue to be a vessel for life force energy. And even when you don't feel it, know that it's still coming. The the flip side of the death cycle is the life cycle. It's always, always there. One thing I've been thinking about, especially in this moment in human history, as we've been dealing with COVID-19 and the quarantine and shelter in place and people losing their livelihoods and their jobs and their careers. And in many cases, the divorce rate, especially in Asia being massively high, What I think about as we are, I feel are kind of getting close to the end of this podcast, the death of this episode is the lack of initiation rituals related to death in our society, how death is something in the shadows and it's not talked about. And we put our elderly and squirrel them away in convalescent homes, or we we don't even talk about death or how to prepare for death. We don't even talk about you know, our wills or our trusts. I mean, these are conversations that we are so frightened of in and our maybe society. maybe that's why people are so triggered by 
COVID-19 is yes. because it's like- <laughs> Yes, exactly. Because it's a death initiation. It's, it's a ritual we're all collectively experiencing right now of like, hey, you guys, you don't have any cultural initiation rituals to like have a good, healthy relationship with the idea of death. So this whole situation, and Whitney, that's exactly it. I feel like this is a collective human initiation into we're going to put death right in front of your face, physical, actual death, like the losing of people's lives and the proverbial archetypical death of your career dying, your job dying, your sense of who you fuck you thought you are is dying. I mean, this to me on a spiritual level is a massive death initiation. It's a ritual. Absolutely. I think it's, um, for me, I've seen it as a grand opportunity. And I don't even know if it's going to go as as far as it should to create permanent, sustainable change. Um, And I I don't wish suffering on anybody, but I've definitely seen this as an initiation, just like you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Opportunity for us to do things in a different way. From what the way we consume to how we grow food to knowing that we don't need to travel as much, <laughs> things yes. can still get done. We can cut the carbon rates. I wish they would have shut down. You know, when the Amazon was burning, like why weren't the planes grounded then? You know, like w- what does it take to get people to um, to say, wake up? Yeah, to say okay, we. How many times can we be initiated <laughs> in or and actually step up to the plate? and make the initiation a realization. Well, I think we go through so many different waves of consciousness as human beings, and none of us know how long we will be around personally or, or as a species, you know? And, and I think that's, that's part of releasing the attachment or knowing and the control and all of this power that we think that we have and transforming our power too into something more positive and less ego-based. I think that's what I hope comes out of this. And the benefit of becoming self-aware is moving away from your ego, which is like the ongoing lesson that our episodes seem to come down to. It's like, hey, can we step away from being selfish and unaware? And, And how can we just become very conscious about our choices and how we affect other people, how we affect animals and the planet? And and how we feel about ourselves. Can we deal with ourselves in a, on a certain level as, as opposed to trying to escape it or just lead from our ego all the time? Because we just get all these lessons over and over again. Again, personally and as a society, it's like how many times do we need to learn that leading with our egos does not do us much good? And I think it's going to be up to the people who realize that to carry that energy and knowledge past when the lockdowns are lifted. Absolutely. And we might we might go, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, in the US, we have a president that is leading from his ego and not to get too political, but and from my perspective, it's, it's kind of matter of fact. It's like he's, it's very much about him and the way that he is perceived by others and being right all the time. And he just really seems to struggle with with being wrong. Or, you know, like he, it's very driven by like how he can kind of make himself look good. And sadly, there are some people that see that as an example and and think that that is a good way to move forward. But from my perspective, it's so ego-based that it's not, it's actually causing more harm than good. And actually, I think in that way, he 
Trump is his own initiator. Like we are in an initiation because of him. Like we either, I've seen people rise up in anger and blame and point fingers, you know, during his whole presidency. And I've always gone back to, what are you going to do about it? It's up to you. Right. Are you going to pull your money? Because you have the you have the ultimate influence. He can't do anything with, if you're spending your money in different ways and supporting the kind of institutions and organizations and life systems that you want. It comes back to us. Absolutely. Our, yes, our agency as individuals. Exactly. And I think that's also such an important lesson is, you know, we actually do have more power than we might realize. It's just in a different way than we might realize. Like sometimes we exert our power in ways that aren't really productive, but our power lies in the actions that we take and the mindset that we have throughout it all. And I think that's been the comforting side of it is when I feel like the world is in a negative place and I feel depressed and I'm not happy with our current leadership. I also have to remember that there's a lot that I can do and, and I might have even more power than I have ever realized before. It's That's real deep. And it goes, uh, for me, it goes to the level of like, I went down when all these marches started happening around the, the time Trump was elected and women's marches and all of it. I didn't participate. I did, I did go down once just to feel the energy. And I do understand the the motivation and the benefits of people coming together and showing bodies. But to me, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And the first things that the Nazis did was march them. Oh, yeah. They're drained and exhausted. And then they're vulnerable. And so you ain't going to catch me marching and begging corrupt leadership to change when I've got all my own energy to change right at my fingertips. Without them, I don't need them at all. And that, that's a fuck you energy. I don't need you. And I'm not going to fall in line with the trend of marching because it's not genuine to me. What's genuine mm. to me is the way I eat, the way I spend my money or mostly don't spend my money, and the way I take care of people and my relationships one-on-one -on -one and tolerance for people and working through um, conflict. Yeah, I love that so much because we've talked about like activism before and, and how I've struggled as a vegan feeling like I'm not enough of an activist, but maybe my power isn't in that form of activism and going to the marches and the protests, like similar to you, Ruby, like for different reasons. I, I just don't, it doesn't resonate with me. And I, I, I felt kind of like a little bit of shame for not going to things like that and wondering like, am I not doing enough? But I'm doing my own version of it. And maybe that's more powerful for me. Maybe that's a better use of my energy. That's true leadership to me. When someone can activate their agency independent from what other people are doing and follow your own North Star because you've checked in with yourself and checked in with what's genuine and effective in your mind. Even if it's going against all the masses. Yeah. I love that we're talking about this because it to me has been one thing that has, I've identified a sort of psychological thing, even in the well-meaning activist communities, whether that is obviously the, the vegan community we have all been uh, a part of for a long, long time now, or eco-activism, or a lot of women's rights, the, all the things we're talking about, my friends, is there, even in those, there seems to be a, a tyranny of the majority is the term I like to use. And it's the sense of, 
you identify as this thing. You're a Democrat, you're a liberal, you're a vegan, you're eco-friendly, you're queer, transgender, what, like whatever the thing is that people identify as, because you are that thing and you've claimed that label or that lifestyle or, or you are that thing, you ought to feel this way that we feel as people who also identify as that. And if you don't feel that way and you don't take the same kind of actions, we're going to castigate you and shame you and make you feel like as if you ought to do what we do. And that's been one of the biggest things that has motivated me to step out of a lot of different communities, including the vegan community. Like I use that word, if I may, because I haven't found a, an even plant-based whatever. Like I, I kind of don't want to really use any of those words anymore because I've been so disillusioned with this mentality in so many of the different communities I've been in. A lot of them I've named where I'm like, you know what? I identify as the thing you do, but I don't feel or think or want to take the same action you do. And I don't want to be shamed for it. Fuck you. I don't want to be shamed for it. Absolutely. I feel the same way about a lot of feminist stuff. And obviously, obviously, we support an equity or an equality, whatever it means to you, fairness or equalness. That's up to you in your mind. But there's a lot of things like as this just came up, the male gaze, you know, and, and as a feminist, you're supposed to have a critique against the male gaze and doing things for the male gaze approval. But you know what? If I check myself, I actually like the male gaze. I think that that's one of men's or the masculine's greatest powers is you can make somebody feel beautiful or you can make somebody feel safe or you can make somebody feel like things are going to be okay. It's your girlfriend or your mom or your sister. And more men need to use their power for good, but I would never put it down. Because I actually derive joy and a feeling of safety from it. I like it. I think that's important too. And, you know, it's like I feel similarly about a lot of things is like there's no, I don't feel the need to put things down. I really feel like life is just full of gray areas. And I, the older I get, the more I, I want to get away from judging things as right versus wrong, good versus bad. Because I can see a positive side to most things. And I don't need to reject something or protest something or shame something or, or whatever jump on it a is. Bandwagon. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like, I don't like that energy of like debate, you know, like taking a side. It just doesn't feel right to me. And again, I'm not even going to judge somebody if they do want to take a side. That's part of it. It's like, I just am trying. So uh, to be very conscious about me like taking sides in general, even though I, I have actions like being vegan is in a way taking a side. It's saying I don't agree with the way animals are treated or used for our benefit, but I can still do that without consciously judging somebody and shaming somebody and trying to convince them of something. And, uh, I feel the same way about politics. You know, it's like I personally don't agree with with Trump's leadership, but I'm not going to shame somebody if they voted for him or not like want to talk to somebody. I mean, I actually enjoy hearing from people on the other side of things. Right, and, I, I was going to say, you, no? you don't. It's not even neutral. It's like you want to hear. You want to create more yes. understanding. You want to create more tolerance. That's true unity. You know, if we can really accept everybody from where they're at, and I think as we do wrap up this episode and, and kind of one of the themes here is like, it's okay, whatever you're feeling, <laughs> you know, I'm like, 
we're all at different places. We all have different levels of consciousness and awareness. And it's so much based on how we were raised as kids and what our parents taught us and what society was like at that time. And where did we live? And how did we grow? What were our life experiences that lead us to who we are? All of us are are coming from so many different places and we don't all need to be the same. We don't all need to be at the same place. And it's not a competition ultimately about how you can get to a level of awareness or peace or are you doing everything right in life? I mean, that that's another thing that's come up so much is like, who even decides what's right or wrong, good or bad, what's successful or unsuccessful? It really, to me, all comes down to our personal experiences and not in comparison with other people. Instead, if we could all just say, I love who I am, I see my innate worthiness, and I respect the people around me and love them for wherever they are. To me, that feels like the ultimate form of peace. For sure. Good. Well said. Yeah. Well said. I, uh, I, had, I had one thing that I wanted to bring up in a really funny way is this idea uh, that has been spreading around the internet for a while about, um, about getting woke and people being woke AF. And I remember last year, Whitney, we, we wrote a blog post about this. We'll link th- to that in the, the show notes at wellevator.com. But this funny, I don't know, competition about what level of woke you are. And it's like, if you are perceiving wokeness and self-awareness as a competition or that there are like things to attain or levels to get to, then you're missing the point completely about... <laughs> But maybe that's part of it too. Maybe, you know, and this is something I think about all the time of if everything is awareness and everything is soul and everything is universe or everything is God and everything is everything, then to your point, Whitney, about good, bad, right, wrong, evil, that I mean, if it's all part of the same thing, then it's really about our individual subjective perceptions that make things good or bad. Right. And if we if we're aware of our ego then like judging somebody else for being different from us, that's our ego talking. Like, I mean, even talking about Trump, I just try not to talk about him because it's like, I don't want to judge him, right? That's my ego talking if I'm going to judge somebody who's different than me. And the truth is everybody is different from me. And that's, you know, with this whole woke thing, you're right. It's like my definition of being woke is is being like at peace and that might be different from somebody else's definition, but I don't need to like be in competition with like my level of awareness in life, you know, and like how I act. And when people try to come across as better than me, that turns me away from them. That doesn't make me feel closer to them. So it, yeah. it has like an opposite effect of what I feel like people are trying to achieve when you try to like act as if you're holier than... I mean, we we talk about this so much. Like We even have the episode about can you really be an expert in anything? Because sure, like it depends on your definition of being an expert. And I can understand how, why you might want to use that. But I would rather feel like the play field or whatever is, is level and that somebody is seeing me just as valuable as they are versus thinking that they're better than me and they're more knowledgeable than me. Or what if that person says, I am more experienced than you in this, but you're probably more experienced than me in something else. And like that makes us all equals at the end of the day. We just have different experiences in one another. It doesn't mean that anybody is better than somebody else or at a higher level, you know, but our society is trying to force us into these different levels. I think welcoming conflict and difference too 
into your life is like a real good test of how practiced you are. Absolutely. Yep. I think some of the liberal progressive demographic are some of the most intolerant people. Um, Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of hatred coming out, whether it's directed towards Trump or directed towards Southerners or like, it's just. Or even in the vegan community, right? I mean, all of us being in this vegan world for so long, it's like the vegans can be the infighting, basically, whether you're vegan or not. Like, it can just be so extreme and people want to, you're not vegan enough or whatever else, like judging other vegan. It's like, oh my God. And it just comes down to that not good enough mindset that is just, it's like a a massive mental illness that many of us have. It's just like, I'm not good enough and you're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough. Nothing's ever good enough. It's like this whole thing of like, you're not enough. You're not vegan enough. You're not woke enough. You're not political enough. You're not whatever enough. And and that to me is like incredibly draining and stressful. No matter, no wonder anxiety is so rampant because I think that a lot of anxiety stems from that not enoughness feeling. Well, I honor both of you for doing the work to to identify it and try to move to a higher level of consciousness. I think that's what we're all doing in our creative work and how we try to relate to the outside world. I just highly, highly appreciate the work. Likewise, Rue. And and as we are heading toward the the conclusion of this episode, I, I do have one final curiosity for you, Ruby. Yeah. In the pantheon of the human experience, what do you personally feel is the purpose of artwork, what role does it serve, do you think, in the human experience? Why is art important? I think that it's a sense, it gives, it's almost a trigger. It's a trigger to give you a sense of something that you may not even be conscious of or have words for. So it kind of goes back to process and creation. It's like if you don't, if you don't follow it, if you don't look at it, then you don't know what you're missing. So art can be a trigger to help you find something, whether the artist, you know, whether you find what the artist intended or something else, it's there to lead you to something that you're not, that's not in your immediate consciousness. It's beautiful, Ruby. Thank you so much for being here. It feels literally the energy like we, even though we're physically distanced right now, that this is the kind of conversation that the three of us enjoy when we are physically present. And I just appreciate you so much as a friend and fellow artist and someone that I know Whitney say the same thing that we just deeply value in our lives and appreciate the time here today. Love you guys too. And I want everybody to ease up on themselves. <laughs> Find, feel good. Find what feels good. Both of you. Thank you, Ruby. And uh, for anyone who wants to learn more about Ruby's work and check out her amazing books, and are you are you still selling those those shirts like Jason has? Yeah, there's some left. There'll be okay, there'll great. be more in the works. Wonderful. Well, we will link to all of that and more. Anything we talked about today, any resources, we put everything on our website at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a podcast section of our site with show notes for every single episode, including this one. You can search for whichever episodes or just 
if you go to it right after you listen to the episode, there's a chance that it's right up on the main page. And uh, we're here for you. So you can connect with us. You can connect with Ruby included. All of that. We have our email address and social media links and lots of different ways for you to get in touch and learn more. And we'd love to continue the conversation with you on social media or on our website. There's a comment section where you can share your thoughts there too. You can also share this episode if you listened and it resonated with you and you know someone else who might enjoy it. Please pass it on to them and uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you'd like as well. That always helps us reach more people. And we're, we're so grateful for you just as we're grateful for Ruby. And we will be back with another episode in just a few days. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 